Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 15. We say for me and my wife, thank you for your generosity and your appreciation that you showed to us this morning. We truly are grateful for you all, grateful for our Lord who has brought us here to minister to you all and to love you all. And I'm glad we didn't give Eric any more time. Might have just, might not have had any time to preach. So. <laughs> Thank you for what, those kind words, Eric. Appreciate that. And I love that we have the opportunity to go again to God's word. Always faithful, always true. May we have hearts ready to receive, ears ready to hear what God would say to us through his word this morning. So would you stand with me as I read from Exodus 15, the first 21 verses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they trembled, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. May the grace, peace, and mercy of the Almighty God be granted at all times to us, O Lord, those who are miserable sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What is it that makes your heart sing? Or does your heart sing? Does your mouth sing? And have you ever thought, how is it that we have been created as creatures who sing? God has specifically created us and designed us to be singing creatures. This is the ability that God has given to mankind. Other creatures perhaps sing in various ways, but the Lord has designed us to sing with intelligence, to sing in such a way that we communicate with words. When we sing, we are saying something. And not only does the communication happen with the words we sing, but also through the notes that we sing. Singing does something that's rather amazing. It communicates emotions, feelings, a tone that makes us feel a certain way. From a tune that is happy and upbeat and peppy to a dirge that is slow, gloomy, in a minor key where there is tension and discord. Singing is a way that we communicate. It's also very expressive, sometimes very artistic. But do we ever think about singing as a way that we communicate 
to other people. I remember when the Broadway hit, Les Miserables, was made into a film. I had a friend who decided to take his wife on a date night to go watch this movie. And it didn't get very far into the movie until my friend leaned over to his wife and said, are they going to sing every line in the movie? Because that's Les Miserables, if you're familiar with it. They sing just about every line of discourse in that production. All of the dialogues in that movie were sung. It's one thing to sing it through a theatrical production or a movie, but could you imagine if everything that you communicated, you had to communicate through song to somebody else? Hearing my friend tell that story, he knew he was in for a very long movie. If we had to communicate through song, how many of us would just stop communicating altogether? Which makes me ask another question. How much do you sing? Or how often do you sing? I was unable to find this statistic, but I wonder, for the average person, how much they sing. Maybe they sing along with the radio in the car. Maybe they sing along with the national anthem at a sporting event. Maybe they sing in the shower. But I wonder how much the average person sings. But this might be where we see a distinction with Christians. We are the people of God, those who follow Christ, and so we are those who sing. Singing for us is not something that is to be out of place or weird. Singing for us as Christians is normal. Singing is a natural way that we communicate as Christians. In fact, we're commanded to sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, some have been particularly gifted by God with an incredible singing voice. Others perpetuate the joke that their singing falls underneath the category of making a joyful noise to the Lord. But we cannot and must not deny that singing plays a prominent role in the life of the Christian. Do you think about singing like that? We have already been gathered here together. We've spent 20 minutes or so singing. One more song to come at the end. Would we ever think that something would be lost if we didn't sing? Do we see singing as a necessity? Is singing vital to our Christian lives? Do we see it as obedience to our God and to His Word? Listen to what it says in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. First, did you hear what the content of our singing is to be. It is an expression of the word of Christ that dwells within us. We want to sing God's truth. We want to sing with truth that accords to God's word. So we say it like this. We want to sing the Bible when we're together. 
And one of the ways that we show that the word of Christ dwells in us is through our song. How do I know if the word of Christ dwells in you? I should be able to hear it when we gather together. How do you know that the word of Christ is dwelling in me? You should hear it from my lips. Did you also notice from this verse that there's also this horizontal and vertical dimension of our singing? Horizontal and that one of the ways that we teach and admonish one another is through song, through our singing. When you sing God's word, you are singing to your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You want to teach them. You want to admonish them. You want to encourage them in their faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. So you ever think of your singing as something that's absolutely necessary for your brothers and sisters to hear? They need to hear your voice. Whether good or bad, it doesn't matter. They need to hear your voice. There's also this vertical dimension as well. We are singing to God, singing to Him is one of the ways that we worship Him. There are other ways, but singing is one way that He has designed for us to glorify Him, and He has given, his, he has given us songs in His Word. The book of Psalms is a whole book of songs, 150 songs. We find other songs that are sung in the Bible as well. Mary's Magnificat, where she sings to the Lord after learning that she will give birth to the, to the Messiah. And here in the book of Exodus now, Exodus 15, is this song of Moses or this song that's sung by the sea. as an example of what happens when one's heart and soul as they encounter the Lord and His work, their heart is so overwhelmed, so overjoyed, so enthusiastic, so overcome with the greatness and the glory of God that they have to sing. And so Mary even exclaims this in her Magnificat when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Do you want to sing? Do you have to sing? How you answer those questions will provide an insight into how high of a view you have of God. A high view of God, an accurate view of God says, I have to sing, I want to sing, I must sing, I don't care how bad I am at singing, I don't care if I can carry a tune, none of that matters because exalting in the magnificence of God is more important than myself or how I sound or how I look. If you are afraid that singing isn't cool, I remember I had that in high school, singing didn't seem very cool. The problem is that you think you are more important than God and that you are more important than the people around you that you are refusing to love. If you have a very low view of God and an accurate view of God, then you won't sing and you will have no desire to sing. Have you ever viewed your singing as an accurate reflection of how much or how little you think of God? Now, do not hear me wrong. It is possible to sing for all of the wrong reasons. 
it is possible to sing as a hypocrite. It is possible to close your eyes, raise your hands, and look like you are worshiping the Lord when it's all for show. You can sing and just be pretending. But to not sing, to refuse to sing, to have no desire to sing, communicates a lack of faith and a lack of understanding about who God is and about what God has done. It is these, the nature of God and the actions of God that must be the motivating and driving factor in our singing. If you know God's love to be deep, if you know God's grace to be extensive and amazing, if you know God's mercy to be abundant, if you know God's holiness to be awesome, if you know God's greatness to be infinite, if you know God's righteousness to be satisfying, if you know God's truth to be daily, daily sanctifying, if you know God's salvation to be completely accomplished, if you know God, then you will sing to Him. And with this understanding of who God is and what God has done, we are protected from both hypocritical singing and non-existent singing. It is these that flow out of this song by the sea. The Israelites have just walked through the sea on dry ground with waters of wall on their right hand and on their left. They have just seen the water come crashing down on the Egyptian army, on all the chariots and on all the soldiers. They have seen the dead bodies wash up on the eastern shore of the sea. And after all that they had experienced, after all they had seen, after all they had come to know, they sing. They had to sing. It was the right and appropriate response. They said, we have to worship Yahweh through song. And that's just what Moses led the people to do. While chapter 14 of Exodus instructed us with the prose version, the narrative version of crossing the Red Sea, now chapter 15 retells the event in song or in poetry form. It's restating the same event, but now it's in the form of praise, a praise song that's given to the Lord. And the basis of the song, again, is who the Lord is and what the Lord has done or will do. His person and His works. And we must see that this song, sung thousands of years ago, is our song. So how does this song, sung by Moses and the Israelites on the edge of the Red Sea, how does it inform how we sing and the song that we sing today as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, I have five points. I will get through two this morning. And again, going back and forth between who God is and what the Lord does. So we start with who this Lord is. Number one, we sing praise to the Lord who is imminent. We sing praise to the Lord who is imminent. That's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. What does that mean? We might not use that word very often. I debated, should I use that word or not? But let's define it here for a second. Imminent or imminence refers to God's closeness or his nearness. Our Lord is 
personal, and so he relates to us in a personal way. It is God's involvement with his creation and with his creatures. So again, imminent imminence, God's nearness, his closeness, his personal nature, and his involvement in our lives. And we see this at the beginning. The Lord is the one who is sung to, and notice the proclamation and determination which, with which they sing. They say, I will sing to the Lord. What is it that would stop you from singing? Is our determination to sing ever overcome by something else? God's word gives us so many songs to cover so many various things that might go on in our lives. The Israelites showed this determination to sing to the Lord. And there's a reason why they are determined to sing to the Lord. We see the reason there. After they make that declaration, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because or for He has triumphed gloriously. The Lord has put on display His glorious glory for His people to see. He has been involved in His creation and His involvement has brought forth this glorious triumph that they could not deny. Triumph, why? Because He had thrown the horse and His rider into the sea. And look at how personal this song is. We see it as there are these pronouns that are described. I will sing to the Lord. You see it there also in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And this is my God, my Father's God. Therefore, I will praise Him. Therefore, I will exalt Him. Look at the personal ministry of Yahweh to His people. So much that they are able to say this about God. The imminence of the Lord has an impact upon his people. And you can see just how personal and intimate this involvement of the Lord is in their life when you contemplate the contrasts between Yahweh and the people he is ministering to. So think about it for a moment. He is my strength. Why does the Lord need to be my strength? Because I am weak. When I am confronted with my weakness, the Lord has to be my strength. Why does the Lord need to be my song? Because otherwise, I have no reason to sing. I would only ever sit in the silence of despair and darkness. Why does the Lord need to become my salvation? Because otherwise, I would remain enslaved, enslaved to sin and death. Why do I need this God to be my God? Because there are those out there who would try to be my God. Because Pharaoh will not and cannot be my God. There are those who would try to lord themselves over me, demand my service and my worship. This God is my God. Pharaoh will not be my God because I cannot serve two masters, for either I will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one 
and despise the other? Why is it necessary that this is my Father's God? Because this is who God has declared himself to be. Do you remember what, what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 3? Yahweh says to the people of Israel in Exodus 3.15, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And, I, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what is the Lord doing there? He's saying, He is the covenantal God. He is the God who makes promises and keeps His promises. He is the God who is not only a part of their heritage, He is their heritage. And He is giving them a heritage. What grace has God shown to their fathers? Grace in every way. Will not the God of their fathers also show them grace? And will not the God of our fathers then also show us grace? We praise the Lord who is imminent and has intervened in the course of human history. He was involved in the crossing of the Red Sea. He wasn't sitting as a spectator watching this all take place. The Lord was doing it. The Lord was accomplishing it. The Lord was orchestrating everything from beginning to end. So much so that look at what it says here now in verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. Or the Lord is a warrior. You ever have that thought of the Lord? That he is a man of war? That he is a warrior? Going out into battle? The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. This is the Lord who fights for his people. This is the Lord who goes to battle for his people. This is the Lord who wins, who triumphs gloriously over his enemies for his people. The Lord fought for the Israelites. He fought against the Egyptians. And let us not say that, well, the Lord is a warrior. Well, that was nice for the Old Testament. Like, that was, that's God back then. The Lord was a warrior back in Exodus, but he's not a warrior anymore. Let's look together at Revelation 19 for a moment. Revelation 19. What a beautiful picture is given to us here, beginning in verse 11 of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord is a warrior. Jesus Christ is a warrior for his people, and he will win the battle. He has won the battle. 
This is the kind of confidence that we need as we sing these songs to the Lord to know that He is the one who has fought and who has won and who has triumphed gloriously. Just as it points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the one that we will follow then into battle. The armies of heaven, robed, right, with this pure, fine linen, following him on white horses. This is the name that will be known throughout the whole world. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. There is no other king. There is no other Lord. He is King Supreme. He is Lord Supreme. There is no one else to follow. All other kings, all other lords will fall. He alone will remain. There's no other king to follow. The Lord is a warrior. He is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Number two, we sing praise the Lord who has defeated his enemies to deliver his people. We sing praise the Lord who has defeated his enemies to deliver his people. So our first point talked about who the Lord is. Now we see what the Lord has done, the Lord's action. And you will notice that this action is all centered around the destruction of the Egyptian forces. It's an action of judgment that leads to salvation. It is an action of defeat. It comes upon the enemies of God so that he can deliver his people. And there's also a slight change that we see in this section, verses 4 through 10. It changes from singing to others about what the Lord has done to singing to the Lord himself about what he has done. You see that there in the change from verse 5 to verse 6. As verse 6 then goes to the Lord saying, Your right hand, O Lord. Your right hand, O Lord. Pharaoh's chariots, his army were cast by Yahweh into the sea. All the special forces that they had were sunk. They went down into the depths. They met a watery grave. The floods covered them just as the floods, just as the flood covered the globe in Noah's day. So now the floods of judgment again close over the Egyptian army. They went down to the depths, to the deep, like a stone. There was no one who could raise them up. There was no way out of God's judgment for them. And here we are given a contrast, again, between the weakness of the Egyptian army in comparison to the power and might of God. So now the song goes to address Yahweh directly, the Lord's right hand, the mighty hand of the Lord, the hand that is sovereign over everything that is glorious in power. It's the right hand of the Lord that shatters the enemy. It's the right hand of the Lord that leaves his enemy shattered in pieces. Pharaoh's chariots, his hosts, his chosen officers, with all of their military might, were nothing in comparison 
with God. He overthrew them. And I love what it says here. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. What does the greatness of the Lord's majesty look like? Something that we would stand in awe of? Something that we would be amazed at? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. When we think of the greatness of the Lord's majesty, what do we think about? Think about his grace. Think about his mercy. Think about his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us. How majestic are you, O Lord? What does it say here? How is the greatness of the Lord's majesty displayed? Overthrowing his adversaries. You want to see the majesty of the Lord? The Lord says, let me show you just how great my majesty is. Look at these people that I have judged. Does that ever get under our skin? The Lord would do that? Wait, it goes on, doesn't it? You send out your fury to consume them like stubble. (laughs) So the Lord shows his majesty in overthrowing his adversaries, and also he sends out his fury. It's a fiery fury. Would that ever get underneath our skin? The Lord is furious. He has fury that comes out from him. What are we to think of this? Well, first, this fury, this fury that comes from God is a divine fury. It's not a fury like that of man. Therefore, since it is a divine fury, it is perfect. It is righteous. Our fury is mingled with sin. Our fury is mingled with fallenness. Man's fury can be capricious, rash, unjust. It can be all over the place. God's fury is always just and right and true. It's never sinful. And at the end of verse 7, we get a hint that his fury is just because it says that Yahweh's fury consumes his enemy like stubble. Now, word stubble, we've seen that already in the book of Exodus. Do you remember where? Do you remember when? Exodus 5.12. Remember that Pharaoh placed a heavier burden on the Israelites in their slavery, making them collect their own straw to make the bricks? So Exodus 5.12 says, So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Now what's it like? Now it's like the Egyptians have become that stubble, the stubble that represented and reminded the people of the harsh slavery that they were under, that stubble that symbolized the oppression and suffocating demands placed upon them by the Egyptians. Now all of that stubble is consumed. It is no more. It has all been done away with and the people are free. They have been delivered. The Lord has shown his great power over his adversaries and he has shown his majesty, 
His consuming fury that has gone out upon his enemies is just and right and true. Why fury? Sin against an infinite God requires infinite judgment. And oftentimes, if we ever struggle with this idea of fury, God's fury, who is it that gets to determine what God is like? Is it us? Or is it God? He determines who he is and how he acts. And he brings his fury upon the enemies in such a way that is just. But now, look at verses 8 through 10. But now, verses 8 through 10, go back through it all again from beginning to end. They give us the perspective of God. We are told... In the prose version, so back in Exodus 14, we're told that a strong east wind drove back the sea. What's interesting is that the Israelites stood on the western side of the Red Sea, and so this east wind came over the sea, and it's almost like they could see the Lord part the sea, and it was coming towards them. Sometimes we think about the the fact that this sea was parting in front of them, but it seems like if this wind was an east wind coming from the east, actually the water was parting at the far end of the the sea as it came towards them. Now though, what does it say? Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Wait a second, wasn't it an east wind? Or was it God's nostrils that blew the sea apart? Well, I don't think it's an either or, I think it's a both and. Now, this is a description telling us this is God's work. It's his doing. He is the one who caused all of this to happen supernaturally. Supernatural act of God, who at the blast of his nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And this is is the pathway that the Lord had created for the Israelites to cross over through. How amazing, how amazing that this is the action of the Lord from beginning to end. There is no denying that all of this is happening according to his will and his perfect plan. And when this happens, the enemy becomes deceived into thinking there is a way that they can win. And what happens? The enemy begins to exalt themselves, don't they? (laughs) Look at this. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You hear this, I will, I will, I will. My desire, I will, my hand. Oh, what confidence and with what certainty the enemies speak. They exalt themselves in what they believe they will be able to accomplish. And all they conspire to accomplish is violence and destruction upon the people of God. Who is going to stop them? Who is going to thwart them? They are self-determined. They are self-willed. They are self-confident. They are depending completely on self. And they say, we've got horses. We've got chariots. 
We've got more people than they do. What more do we need? We are unstoppable. And Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, warned the people of God in chapter 31.1 when he said, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. This is what the Egyptians are doing, 100%. They relied on horses, they trusted in chariots and horsemen because they were strong. They had no thought of Yahweh whatsoever. And what do we need to learn as we sing this song to the Lord? The word of the enemy does not prevail, the word of the Lord prevails. And the word of the enemy will seem strong. The word of the enemy will be confident. The word of the enemy will say things like, I will, I will, I will, my hand, my desire. But it is the word of the Lord that prevails. It is not the prideful or the haughty or the arrogant who win. God brings judgment down upon the prideful and the arrogant. And verse 10 shows that this is no contest whatsoever. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. How highly they had exalted themselves and how quickly it all crashed and came tumbling down. The Lord pursued them, he overtook them. The prideful enemy does not win. But those who are humble and contrite before the Lord. This is what Isaiah 66, 2 says. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We fight an enemy who tries to exalt their words. Who tries to intimidate with fear using their words. We fight an enemy who comes very craftily and slyly and says, has God really said? Is God really good? Does God really have your best interest? I will do so much more, says the enemy. Think about what what the enemy said to Jesus there. All, you, you fall down and you worship me. I will give you all of these kingdoms right now, here and now. One little thing, all you have to do. The word of the enemy will not prevail. And what is it there, even in that, that moment when Christ is being tempted by the devil, by Satan, with the very first temptation, I believe, when he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the word that will prevail. That is the word that sustains us. That is the word that protects us. That's the word 
that causes our hearts to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning that you've given to us. May we learn from it. May we have hearts that sing. And may our songs be informed by who you are, the personal God, the imminent God, the God who is involved in our lives. And may our song also be informed by what you have done. You deliver your people as you defeat your enemies. And how can we also not think of the cross in that? There's Jesus Christ, our Savior, defeating the enemies of sin and death, and Satan himself on the cross, in order to deliver people and to give them life. So, Father, I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here who does not know this life in Christ, that they would come to him today. They would turn from their sin and put their faith fully in him to be delivered. No longer an enemy, but now as one who's brought into the family of God, as a child of God. And we thank you, Father. We thank you. That as your word says, while we were still enemies, while we were ungodly and unholy in every way, Christ died for us to save us, to reconcile us to you. What amazing grace. For we did not deserve that. But we praise you that now we can know peace with you. Know peace as we come before your throne even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.